we felt when we when we started the company about a decade ago that uh, everyday health experiences are really invisible. They're invisible to the traditional brick and mortar part of healthcare. And that means that there are really missed opportunities to uh, measure health more holistically, more fully, and if you could do that, to improve it. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. As healthcare moves away from its traditional brick and mortar roots, experts are redefining how they measure and improve health. One such expert is Deb Kilpatrick, co-CEO and chair of Evidation Health. At Evidation, Deb takes health assessment out of the clinic and integrates it into people's daily lives. With a focus on person-generated health data, Evidations empowers individuals to take control of their health by having them generate and own their health data. Today, Evidations make up a vast community of health consumer and professionals who collectively take pride in their everyday health. In this episode, Deb discusses her globally recognized health tracking platform and her journey. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Deb. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Christine. It's great to be here. It's been so exciting for me. Uh, as mentioned earlier, I've been hearing a lot about you and know of you for many, many years. And it's so great to finally have you in our podcast. Oh, it's uh, we're in the Mutual Admiration Club then. Um, I admire uh, the Rosamond Institute and what you've built there, Christine, and um, was very excited to learn there's a companion podcast. I, I I always like to start with um, your journey, your personal journey, because I think uh, it shows uh, a lot about your passion, your challenges, the choices that you make, the path in life that take you where you are. If you can start from there, that'd be great. Sure. So as my longtime friends and colleagues know, I grew up in the rural South, the daughter of a high school football coach. And I like to start my story there because... So much of my leadership style, you know, in some ways is based on is based on growing up around my father and watching that, uh, watching him, watching him do that. Um, I always was very good at science and math. Uh, always knew that I wanted to be an engineer, and uh, I was very fortunate that I grew up um, two hours south of Atlanta, uh, and more specifically, two hours south of the largest engineering program in the country at Georgia Tech. And I, uh, so I went there for my undergrad in engineering science and mechanics, uh, which uh, in a lot of cases is called engineering physics. Uh, it's a, it's a perfect undergraduate degree if you want to go to graduate school, which I always knew that, um, I, I would do. Um, I did take a little bit of a two-year break after undergrad and my PhD to work on the F-22 Raptor program. Um, and it was, uh, in the late 1980s. It was the tail end of the Cold War, and it was there were five supercomputers called the Cray in the world, and I got to work on one of them. And so I was uh, it was an extremely intense uh, two year period uh, working on that program, but it taught me a lot about how to think and how to deal with complexity and how to be an engineer. 
And I went back to grad school uh, to focus on my PhD in mechanical engineering, but with an eye towards bioengineering and very specifically with an eye towards developing new computational approaches to studying human soft tissue. And the uh, at that point in time, the, the biggest clinical application of that kind of work was in vascular disease and, and understanding atherosclerosis and the dynamics in the body of, of disease progression, as well as the dynamics and biomechanics of individual uh, lesions in the coronary bed and the carotid bed and the peripheral bed that actually lead to acute events. And so that's what I did my PhD on. And then I had this incredible opportunity, which is uh, not that normal and usual, I recognize, for PhD students to go to industry and be able to directly bring their PhD work and apply it immediately into industry R&D. And so I landed at Guidant Corporation uh, here in the Bay Area uh, in the late 1980s, mid to late 1980s. They had been spun out of Eli Lilly um, as a collection of companies focused on cardiac and vascular disease in the med tech sector. And I was just an incredible, um, incredibly excited. Uh, to be able to develop new ways of modeling and developing computational techniques for studying implant behavior and the interactions between coronary stents in particular and uh, different disease states inside the the vascular tree in the body. And so that's the short answer, I guess, of how I got from rural Georgia to Silicon Valley. And and the rest is uh, a little bit of history. I thought it was interesting that your transition from doing something in the defense world and go to the healthcare world. Yes. Did you see something when you were in that journey that you said, you know what, I don't want to be doing defense for the next five years of my life for my PhD? I I was always very interested in the application of engineering principles to human movement. And biomechanics uh, was a was a field that I that I understood existed. Um, and by the time I finished my my work at Pratt and Whitney on the Raptor program in 1991, there were, I think, just a handful of major bioengineering graduate programs, biomechanical engineering graduate programs in the United States of of, of any real size. And uh, Georgia Tech was one of those. Um, so it was very, very easy for me to, you know, sort of turn back around and go back to Georgia from Florida, and um, and go back on campus and and return to to you know where I'd done my undergrad, but but focus more in computational uh, and exper- experimental computational techniques for studying multiphase materials with an application towards soft tissue. So that was my entry into into sort of the application of engineering to the human body which I had been interested in really as long as I can remember. Yeah. So it, when you when you joined the industry from your PhD, you're doing a lot of the research, the science, the engineering, and you transition more towards the business. And I think many people have done that route. And I'm just thinking about how, you know, for those engin- the engineers out there right now who is listening yeah. and who are interested in Oftentimes people say, oh, just take an MBA, but that's not the route that you took no. either. So, and so just how can you share with us, like how sure. that path go? Well, you know, the, the truth, the truth, Christine, is that I never envisioned myself doing anything other than R&D. 
Um, and I really, uh, never had an inkling in my head, <laughs> um, for the first several years after my graduate work that I would end up in general management, much less, um, as a, as a CEO or in, you know, general executive. And I think the reason why is because I really love, I really love R and D. I I've always loved it. I always knew I wanted to do it. And at some point along the way, uh, in the latter part of my career at Guidant Corporation, when we were, you know, in the last few years before we were acquired by Boston Scientific in 2006, I was uh, one, of the, one of the directors of the team in a group, uh, part of the company we called New Ventures. And New Ventures was sort of chartered with uh, creating, you know, what's next, really, what was going to be next in the product portfolio both from the standpoint of uh, fundamental R&D, IP development, but also working with our, the venture arm of Guidant uh, to sort of make um, um, decisions about how to do R&D both on and off the balance sheet. And that was where I really began to exercise the other part of my brain around strategy, planning, uh, management of teams, and at some point, Christine, I really realized that maybe I wasn't the best person to be the, doing the inventing, <laughs> but that I would be a better person to do some of the commercialization. Um, and that's, that was, it was that clear in my head uh, when, I, when I sort of began to make that decision and ended up moving over to doing sales and marketing and doing um, uh, more general management. And that sort of led at some point to me saying yes to being a CEO. Yeah. But I don't have an MBA. You're right. You're right. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, sometimes uh, people think that's the be- the easiest route to get there. And but what I'm trying to say, it's not the only route. Right. And I think right. oftentimes you hear scientists and engineers, they feel like, I feel like I'm being boxed into the role where I am. Yeah, I want to get out. And I think one another thing, you know, there's always opportunity, but sometimes you need to find it. And you think being also being in a larger company, there's a lot more choices where you can grow into. Yes. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. I think that the corporate experience for me was a, no question, it was a driver of what happened in my career with regard to moving into general management. Um, I had so much, um, I had a really big you know, sort of palette to paint with, I guess you could say, um, inside a Fortune 500 med tech company. And Guidant in particular was extremely uh, encouraging of, of their, their, their leadership at, at many different levels to have sort of these rotational opportunities, rotational experiences to really develop more holistic leadership um, at all, in all parts of the company. Um, and, and I think I, I really, Drew something. I really took that to heart, and and I took it to um, I, I took advantage of that opportunity to really test these other parts of my brain and these other parts of sort of my business muscle, and 
And it challenged me, no question, uh, because I had never, you know, I didn't know how to read a PNL. <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know, I mean, I was really good at math, uh, you know, because of all my, of my degrees in engineering, but, but learning how to develop those muscles, just like going to a gym, you just start going. Um, and eventually you, you kind of figure it out and you learn if you're good at it or not. And uh, I learned that I was, I was pretty good at it. And I, and it was a real, it was a real seminal moment to realize that, you know, I think there's a lot of other people better than R&D than me. I think there's a lot of other people better than, in, you know, inventing and inventing uh, than, than I am. Um, but I also think that maybe I decided that maybe my role, my best role was really to be someone that helped those ideas, helped those inventions actually get to market and, and thrive. And that was the that was the the framing in my mind, and I think it was one of the best decisions that that I ever made. Mm-hmm. And so, from being in a large corporation, and you do jump into a startup role, and how has that changed your perspective and your and what experience that you brought in to to the startups? Yeah, I, th- I think. For me, starting out so early in my career at these very large corporations, because you know Pratt and Whitney was part of United Technologies when I was in the aerospace industry, it's like enormous, enormous corporation. And then being at Guidant Corporation, which is of course much smaller, but but large in the in the med tech sector, you know, I really learned when I went to smaller companies, when I went to startups. I learned that I saw everything that, that was possible inside a corporation and you could selectively scale that down and take what was needed at a given stage of a smaller company to use it. And that's, that's why I, I often mentor um, graduate students in particular who want to go to an industry. Going to a startup is great right out of grad school if you want to do that. I don't want to discourage that. But you do miss, you don't know what you don't know. Um, right. And when you start right out early in your career in a big corporation and you see things on a global scale, you see things at scale, you see operations and organizations operating with large scale footprints, you really learn that your, tool, your, your knowledge of the toolbox is much vaster. Um, and so for me, it, it informed the way that I approached being in management at smaller companies and private companies because I could decide what tool to bring out of that toolbox at what stage of company to really help it grow and, and build it. Um, and, and I think that was, for me anyway, that was the right path. I, I wouldn't have wanted to do it any other way. Yeah, and I, 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 think, I, I think I felt like when you were working in a corporate, there's the, there's the framework that you can pick and choose and yes. know what, what efficient process can be. Yes. Without the bureaucracy, of course, <laughs> and that you can bring that in. Um, you mentioned a little bit um, before we, we talk about your evidation. Uh, you do have a lot of uh, um, not experience, like uh, things that you you do you do a lot of things to mentor. And can you tell us a little bit more? You're in the Stanford Biodesign, and then also doing the MedTech Women as well, and. You're busy. <laughs> well, I like to, you know, I'm interested in a lot of things and um, my, my, I, I, I'm busy, but I'm balanced, I guess is the way I would put it, Christina. I, I have a lot of, I have a lot of uh, a sentiment around making contributions outside of my day job and how can I use, you know, what I learn in my day job and, 
and the privilege that I get afforded uh, for access into certain circles because of my day job and, and my network, like, how can I really make that uh, work for other people? And uh, you mentioned two examples that I think are really great ones uh, through MedTech Women and through Stanford Biodesign. So I've been an innovation team coach at Stanford Biodesign for a number of years. And this is an area where, you know, I, it, it, yes, I'm helping, helping the fellows. Yes, I'm helping them sort of figure out if, if, they're, if they're working on technologies, products, or if they're actually building a company, right? That's, uh, those are different things. Um, and I view my role in that as, uh, you know, certainly not a traffic cop, but more of a crossing guard. Uh, where I'm, if, if they if they want to cross the street, I want to help them and support them with guidance to do that in the best possible way. But it's ultimately their decision. But I'm bringing to bear all the all the mistakes and lessons that that I have right along the way. Um, and I'm 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 pretty pretty shameless about uh, letting everybody know about all the mistakes I've made and hoping that, that they can avoid them or or, or, or learn from them. Um, I think MedTech med tech Women is a bit different. MedTech Women was about uh, when Amy Raimundo and I uh, and our, our colleagues uh, came together in, in about over 10 years ago now. Uh, to start that, it was really about trying to find a way to put a spotlight on what we saw as 50% of the voices of experts in the MedTech sector who weren't, who, who weren't on the podium. And like, could we... You know, could we create a podium to make sure that their voices were heard? Not because there wasn't a business reason. There was a clear business reason here, right? It wasn't just the right thing to do. There was a clear business reason here. And if you consider the fact that we're all in the med tech sector, we're all in the healthcare sector because hopefully we we want to impact patient care for for the betterment of the patients, so the individuals and ourselves as patients in the system uh, at different points in our lives then of course we want the best experts. We want all the experts on the podium. We want all the conversation to be involving all the best people and all the best brains and all the best experiences and all the best minds. And we simply didn't think that was happening. And it doesn't, you know, it didn't take a rocket science, you know, 10, 15 years to go look around and realize that really wasn't happening. And so instead of just uh, complaining about it, we said, well, why don't we try and create a, a podium for, for that ourselves and put a spotlight on this. And if it works, it works. And great, we were right. And if it doesn't work, then fine, no harm, no foul, right? Well, it worked. And uh, it has been a really successful last decade of, of uh, MedTech Women and the MedTech Vision Conference. And now there's many, many events all year round. And we have incredible sponsors and partners in the, in the MedTech ecosystem uh, and so it's it's kind of grown way way beyond in, in many ways what Amy and I were sort of originally envisioning, but I think that just points to the need that was there, uh, you know, to do this. And from a mentorship standpoint, you know, that's just a I think that's intrinsic to to what we're doing, right? Like every every bit of networking, every bit of uh, uh, fireside chat, every bit of podium presence that occurs. Uh, as part of MedTech Women events or the MedTech Vision Conference every year in the fall, to me, that's that's a form of mentoring. That's a form of giving back. That's a form of contributing that really feeds that that part of me that I, I think is really important. Yeah. As, um, you did mention, uh, I, I like that along the way, you, you do a lot of the work on your day job, but then you leverage that to giving yeah. back. Um I think that's just a lot in a lot of the things that you do. 
Um, maybe we, I, I just want to shift in gear because I don't. I want to make sure that we cover a bit about your work at Evidation. Sure. And I think it's really exciting. Uh, maybe if you can share with us, what does Evidation do? What are you trying to address with the technology that you develop? Sure. Yes, I love to talk about Evidation. Thank you for asking, Christine. Um, so at Evidation, our mission is to create new ways to measure and improve health in everyday life. And we do that across a wide variety of therapeutic areas. And the reason that we do this is because we've, we've, we felt when we, when we started the company about a decade ago that uh, everyday health experiences are really invisible. They're invisible to the traditional brick and mortar part of healthcare. And that means that there are really missed opportunities to uh, measure health more holistically, more fully, and if you could do that, to improve it uh, based on those measurements. And so at Evidation, our secret sauce really involves leveraging uh, a a form of health data called person-generated health data, PGHD, um, and refining that PGHD into new measures of health in the context of the daily life of a person, not when they're in the doctor or not we're in the clinic, but, but outside those clinic walls, right? And the reason that we do this um, with regard to uh, person-generated health data is because that is the form of data that is directly generated by the person, owned by the individual, and can be permissioned directly by the individual. And when we started the company, we believed that focusing on that and developing a tech platform around uh, ingestion, refinement, and leveraging of data that a person could generate and own in the context of health was a very, very scalable way of building out this ecosystem. And uh, over time, of course, we can permission many more types of health data as individuals, right? Like the data is being freed from the EHR, the data is being freed from the brick and mortar parts of healthcare that we didn't used to have as much access to. And so that's the sort of bet that we made that ultimately a person would be able to generate health data in the context of daily life, and they would ultimately be able to access and permission data from the system so that their health and, again, ultimately cohorts, populations, health could be more holistically uh, uh, measured. Back to from the very beginning of Evidation Health, when the idea is like generating all this data, did you envision it so that the, this is something that the data that can be leveraged working with different organizations to improve the yes. health of patient? Or is this something that, oh, this is a different way of trying to maybe we can leverage the data that you have? So we, we really always envisioned uh, the business model as being two-sided that on one side of Evidation's tech platform are individuals and their permission data. On the other side of our tech platform are global healthcare companies and enterprises that are sponsoring various use cases that rely on the refinement of that PGHD that's being generated and permissioned uh, by by those connected individuals on, on, on the first side of the platform. And the use cases, as you can imagine, are, are, they span a wide spectrum from uh, very large-scale longitudinal registries across the country, um, as well as, you know, sort of health programs that are going on for, in some cases, for many years that interact with people and that person-generated health data uh, to um, not only measure individual health, 
but uh, use those measurements as a way to improve individual health and be able to do that, you know, in, in large, fairly large populations. And so the, the monetization business model is, is from the enterprise side. And we align the incentives on the connected consumer side so that they want to, to, to participate in this ecosystem and feel rewarded for it. Um, but, you know, when we started doing this, Christine, like, we didn't know any, anybody else that was doing anything like this at all, right, in, in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And I would say um, we've had to learn a lot from other sectors where you see two-sided platforms and two-sided business models uh, but, you know, we still are fairly differentiated today in terms of uh, where we stand in our market landscape. But, but yeah, that's how we en- envisioned the business model from the beginning. And how do you, uh, you, you know, being, uh, being a mentor, seeing a lot of companies, there's a lot of companies now understanding that data, everybody's talking about data, data, data. Right. And then that's where um, a lot of the funding's going towards that direction. It's harder to raise money now if you are the traditional med tech with right. mechanical. And, but I think what I, what I like what you guys do is that you gather the data, provide the incentive for the data, and then monetize it differently. And how do you advise or guide startups who are still trying to figure out the business model on right. the data that they're trying to get? Right. So, you know, we... We get a lot of questions. I get a lot of questions around around exactly kind of what you're getting at around um, different business models of information, of data, and of um, sort of access, let's call it, to data. And the way that we built our, our platform, the way that we built our business is really not quite that. It's really that we, we see ourselves as... Um, allowing enterprise companies to access populations who are, you know, permissioning data for use cases based on that access. And so when I talk to companies or other companies or other founders or startups around who are building these kinds of businesses around around uh, data to, to hit your question directly, you know, I really force the, the delineation out of the gate of like, are you really trying to enable access to the source of data or are you trying to monetize data itself regardless of where it comes from? Because those are really two different things. And for us, we really focused on uh, building a platform around in closed loop individual connections because we believed, I mean, the bet we've made hard is that the individuals themselves would be able to permis- permission into sort of these use case ecosystems and that de-identified data was ext- is extremely limited for us um, because we really want to holistically link all of the data around a person uh, to, to characterize health in a different way. And so that's a very big sort of fork in the road out of the gate when companies come and talk to me about, about business models that, that are monetizing different sources of data. It's like, are you really trying to monetize the, the access to the source? Or are you trying to monetize the data itself? Because those are, those are two different worlds. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good uh, clarification. Um, and I, I also noticed that you and Christine are the co-CEO. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting. I think there, there, another company that I know who's doing the co-CEO is at uh, Salesforce, I think. That's right. The co-CEO. And, right. And Netflix and uh, Warby Parker. Yeah, there's there's some yeah. out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, I, 
but still not common. Is not common, right. At all. And so what was the, the thinking behind it? And why do you think that is the right way? Yeah. And what do you suggest to others, even that start out, well, is this something that they need to think about early on? So, you know, let's start with the start with the business need. When Christine and I met uh, in 2014, um, we 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 were introduced by someone we who was a venture capitalist that we both knew, Rowan Chapman, who at the time was at GE Ventures. And Rowan knew that Christine's background was from the tech sector, right? And she started her career at Microsoft Xbox. You know, Rowan knew that my my background was re- completely in in healthcare, in med tech class three implantables, molecular diagnostics, like really hardcore sort of traditional healthcare. And that was, that was why she was introducing us, right? She felt strongly that um, what we were envisioning building as evidation should, should be done with both of those skill sets at the table. And, and to Ron's credit, she was absolutely right. And, um, you know, I, I, won't, I won't sit here today, Christine, and tell you that any two people who found a company together or run a company together should be co-CEOs. I, I don't claim that at all. But in our case, because our, it's not just that our skill sets are so complementary, we really learned over the years that we have this sort of core foundational overlap in what we value. And, you know, when you share the same values with a person, uh, decision making is often very grounded, even when you disagree in sort of that that core set of values and what you think is important and what what you're sort of honoring and you're in the in the company that you're that you're trying to build. And so for us, it really drew it really grew from a business need to have deep domain skill sets at the table uh, from healthcare and tech uh, to to build evidence. But then over time, our relationship grew in a way that was was we were really running things well from a decision making perspective and had such a we were so comfortable with the level of transparency that's required to do that that we realized it, it was really working for us and so you know when uh, when we became officially we were always CEO and president for a long time and uh, when we officially became co-CEOs it was really in my mind at the time uh, in 2020, it was reflecting how we were running the company as a CEO and president. We were both always on the board. We're both still on the board now. And so for us, even though we recognize that it might seem unusual to others, it seems extremely natural to us. And uh, we're, uh, we're, we're really happy with it. It's almost like you're growing together for that role in a way. Yeah. So then yeah. it, for other people, they just say, oh, that seems Odd, but then for you, it's like the changes is happening. It's very organic. Yeah, right. It's very organic. Yeah. It doesn't feel forced. And but I but I will say that you know I I can't say that I could just do that with anybody. I, I think Christy mm-hmm. and I are are, are pretty unique um, as a combination and uh, work incredibly well together. But there is a radical level of candor and transparency that you know not every two people are going to be really comfortable with. Um, right. Yeah, I think uh, yeah. personality matching, chemistry, yeah. and your point of view about candor and transparency has to be all similar. Maybe almost, almost even the emotional uh, yeah. take on a lot of the things. I know I, 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 I uh, we are short on time, but I want to make sure I ask you the question. You mean you mentioned that you share a lot of your lessons learned, mistakes that you made. Mm. What are the top three that you share? 
with others who are I, interested in doing what you know. I, I would say things. there is a <laughs> over over the years, Christine. I've learned that um, like an Achilles heel that I have, which is often the core driver of any mistake I make. <laughs> as it is for all of us, if we're honest, right, is that I've had to learn over the years how to put my energy into a situation and when to take my energy out of a situation. I'm a, I'm fairly intense person (laughs) um, in style. And that's not always, that's not always the best thing to do. And I've learned in the big mistakes that I've made over over the years uh, that it's often a misplacement of my own energy, interfering in things where really they needed to play out or deciding something too quickly before we had all the information we really needed. And so I've learned, or I hope I've learned over the years to be better about that by really consciously choosing um, how I show up in a given situation and what you know, so what my own energy requirement is in it in order to get, get us to a better place, get us to a better answer, get us to a better resolution. And I've, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about myself and how to do that. And I, and I, I talk a lot about that to, to others. Do you have a concrete example that you're saying that you're directing your energy not quite the right allocated the right way? An easy example, like simple example, sort of tactical day to day is, you know, if, if I have, if I'm running an executive team meeting and I have two or three executives that are, that are really on different sides of an issue, um, and I have an opinion in that moment, exactly what the answer should be, exactly who I side with, but I, but I, but I will often choose to, to just not do that, um, and facilitate an interaction between them that surfaces all of the key, all of the key underlying intentions and assumptions. Um, make sure that it is thoroughly uh, examined, um, and then quickly move on. But not ever putting my own intensity and energy into it because it tips the scales. And sometimes you don't want to tip the scales as a CEO. You want you want to let it play out. Um, and you know it's not a perfect science, but um, that's how it shows up for me a lot day to day. It's just choosing where to quickly resolve something and make a decision versus let it play out a bit uh, because it's actually developmental for the team, developmental for the company or developmental for an individual. And that takes also a lot of uh, trust that you have on your team that things will be solved. Yes. It's almost like I I have a child, so I almost feel like a parenting in a way. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there is an aspect of leadership that particularly, you know, the sort of forms of authentic leadership that feels very much like authentic parenting um, or being an authentic friend or being authentic in a relationship where, you know, I think the, the three the three signs of authenticity in those, t- in those situations are you're willing to say you're wrong, you're willing to say you made a mistake, or you're willing to say when you need help. And to me, that that is seminal, like showing up that way is seminal to being a part of a core executive team, being a good executive, being a good leader, being a good mentor, and being able to learn from the situation yourself. Um, and so that that is how I try to show up. Um, I'm not perfect, though. <laughs> and that's where, we get, that's where we get back to the mistakes. 
<laughs> yeah, it's um, but I think what you're saying, those three is so important. I think it also provides a good culture in a way when you have, you are able to do all those three, I think. And it makes it okay for other people to, to do the right. things. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, thank you for sharing that story. And thank you for sharing uh, a lot of your experience and journey. And appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Christine. And congratulations uh, for what you built at the Rosamond Institute. I think it's an incredible, incredible um, entity. And we're lucky in the Bay Area to all benefit from it. Oh, thank you. You're so kind. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.